Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Otmo, the podcast that seeks to explore what's on the mind of some of the most respected and admired people from the world of social good. I'm Joe Jenkins, your host for the show. Previous episodes have included conversations with Stephen Hale, Chief Exec of Refugee Action, Adila Worley, CEO of Charity Comms, Mark Russell, Chief Exec of the Children's Society, and Lucy Cordicott, Labour Councillor and Founder of Social Purpose Business Change Out. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with the brilliant Safina Ahmed. We got to know each other some years back through the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, when I was chair of the Institute's annual national convention, and Safina was chairing a new expert panel on equality, diversity and inclusion. Safina didn't hold back in challenging me and the conference board on the steps we should be taking to create a more diverse, inclusive event in a manner that was both thought-provoking, but also thoughtful, listening as well as contributing ideas. Under Safina's leadership, the panel went on to create the excellent Manifesto for Change, setting out a bold vision for a sector where everyone is the right fit. Safina is currently director of the John Elliman Foundation, which she joined in January 2020. The foundation supports small to medium-sized organisations to make a difference to people, society and the natural world, particularly focusing on the arts, environment and social action. Safina joined John Elliman from the City of London Corporation, where she worked in corporate strategy and performance. Before this, Safina held roles in policy and learning at the National Lottery Community Fund, supporting the design and delivery of over £100 billion of funding, including their Women and Girls Initiative. And she also worked before that in service delivery and business development roles in charities supporting adults with learning disabilities and older people. Today, Safina also holds trusteeships with Just for Kids Law and the Charter House. She's also studying a two-year executive MBA with Warwick Business School and is a fellow of the RSA. Really don't know where she finds all this time. It was a real treat hearing from Safina. We discuss her approach to stepping into her first titled leadership role at John Elliman Foundation, how she prepared personally and professionally to take that step, and how she's had to adapt since the pandemic. We explore her leadership experience as a woman of colour and how she's built the safety she needs to share this experience, why she decided this was the year to take on an executive MBA, and the sector-wide conversations in which she's been involved as an influential funder. Now, to warn you, I continue to record these interviews online, which I'm afraid at times does impact on sound quality. We've done all we can, but please do bear with me when it dips, as I promise Safina really is worth listening to all the way through. All right, let's get on with it. Here we go. Let's find out what's on the mind of Sufina Ahmed. Gosh, um, where to begin? Joe, that's a huge question to start with. Um, what's on my mind? So obviously, COVID-19, the pandemic, trying to figure out how we as a funder, so I work for John Allen Foundation and we fund in the arts, social action and environment, trying to figure out how we as a charitable foundation, a funder, can do all that we can to support organisations, but recognising we're a small funder, we don't have deep pockets. And so how can we work with other funders to really make the most impact that we can at this time and really support charities who are just struggling so much? And we're hearing about that directly through our own grantees, but also through what other people in the sector are telling us. Other things that are on my mind, um, I joined John Elliman Foundation in January uh, this year and came in with my big kind of 
100 days, what I was going to do. I had like a three-month plan, a six-month plan, and a 12-month plan, all kind of uh, designed up kind of pre and during my first month in post. And so there's also, you know, my mind a lot has been how to kind of sustain delivery of those different plans, what to kind of let go of, what to kind of delay, and what to keep on track when you're also dealing with something that's totally unplanned for and unprecedented and no one really knows how best to do anything at this time. So yeah, that, that's on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Lot, lots to keep you occupied then. Um, I'm really interested in how you thought yourself into that uh, arrival at John Elliman. And it'd be great to then hear about how you've had to adapt since you've been there. But thinking about moving into that director role, you described having a, a sort of short, medium, long-term plan. Um, how, how did you ready yourself to step into the role? So it's my first time kind of being a chief exec or a director. And so I was really fortunate to be able to reach out to a few people, a few colleagues in the sector, and just get their advice. These were people who I really admired, who were long-term chief execs in charities, and they all had so much kind of advice and wisdom to share, and they weren't, um, you know, reticent in sharing it. Also just spoke to some friends who are in the sector at similar levels or whatnot to me. And so really valued getting advice. I got a really good handover from the previous director of the foundation, Nicola, as well. And she was able to have really um, honest and open chats with me as part of my induction in December. So a combination of just talking to a lot of people, I definitely do that. And um, I also read the Akivo Charity Exec's first 100 days publication that they have, and that was recommended to me. And I would now recommend that to others as well. Having a plan is really important. I don't think you can go into roles like this without a sense of a plan. It's not to say that it has to be so concrete that it's unchangeable and immovable because you need to be um, thinking about what the team is telling you, what trustees are telling you in your first month. So it felt really important to have a plan, to have a sense of direction. Um, These roles are broad and big. And so you need to have a sense of what needs to be done and what your priorities are and why. Um, And in my first month, some of those things got adapted and changed. Other things just got completely solidified and reprioritized, if anything. Some things that you think, hmm, going in, you think they're not as important. And then by being in the role, you realize they are more important than you perhaps um, knew as an outsider looking in. And for me, I think having a structure for your first year with or without a pandemic is really important because there'll be so many things that you could be doing, so many directions you could be going in. If you're taking over a small organization with a, in my case, my predecessor had been in post for eight years. So there's a lot that kind of just happens because it, as it should do. Um, So coming in new I think having a plan, having structure when you're trying, when you're replacing someone who's been in post for a long time is really important because otherwise I think the whole year can kind of disappear before you know it. And in putting that plan together and then starting to put it into place, what, what are the most important features of that plan do you think that have been able to guide you in, in the first year you've been there? So 
it's also about listening to what the interview process is telling you, the questions that you're being asked. It gives you an indicator of what's important to the organisation, what they're looking for in their new leader. Um, we were asked as part of the interview process to talk about our top three kind of priorities um, for the 12, first 12 months in post. So I took a lot of those into my plan because it's obviously I got hired. So they must have heard something in those priorities that was um, resonated it was also a lot of kind of talking to the team in the first couple of weeks individually, but also as a group and hearing what they were asking for in our conversations. And then coming up with a plan for us has been around things that have felt important. So there's a lot in terms of our investments, so how our underlying endowment is managed and whether that completely aligns to the areas we fund and also our charitable purpose and aim. And so trying to make sure that everything is kind of joined up and we're doing good across everything that we do and not just our grant making. Um, there was a lot in there about kind of how we can raise the profile of the work that we do and who we support and why we prioritise the art, social action and environment. So that comes down to, you know, things like strategic communications, profile raising, understanding who you are as a funder how you exist within the funding ecology that we um, operate in and so on and so forth. There's always the stuff about the team. You know, what kind of team do you have? We had a couple of people leave um, at the beginning of the year. So trying to recruit to a team that you're still getting to know is quite an interesting experience, but a really important one in terms of shaping that team that you're taking forward for the hopefully next few years. They will we'll kind of stay put. And also recognising what are the development opportunities and needs of your team, full stop, because um, especially people who've been in post for a little bit longer, but also people coming in new, they've got ambitions and you want to be able to work with them and address those. And then a lot of um, what we're prioritising going forward is around our funder, what support can we offer beyond just our funding to the groups that we work with? And you know, how feasible is that as a smaller funder? Um, we don't have huge amounts of money that we can call on to distribute in support of what, you know, might be called Grantee Plus or Funder Plus and things like that. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work around engaging with our grantees and hearing from them what their priorities are. And, and one of the ways we've done that is we launched a grantee perception survey uh, and it was our first one as a funder. And it was really exciting to start getting some feedback. And that's still away but it's just great to hear what people actually think of us and I'd really like to explore that in uh, in a little bit because I think it'd be helpful just to hear about your role in leadership as a funder because funders have a leadership role in the sector and um, that's become particularly pertinent in the current context we're operating in but perhaps before we get to that I'd like to just go back to um, how you readied yourself for this role um, you mentioned this was your first time as a, a director or chief exec of an organisation. And so there were things that you've done to structure how you arrive and how you plan and how you prioritise. What, what did you have to do for yourself in terms of uh, thinking yourself into a different level than perhaps you've operated before? Yeah, it's quite difficult, actually. Um, I remember last January, so not the January just gone, talking about titled leadership roles and the kind of privileged access and you know responsibility certainly but a, how much a titled leadership role can unlock in terms of 
individually for your organization for your team etc um and so I guess I've been thinking about this you know a titled leadership role if I can call it that for the last 18 months really and I don't know that it was necessarily an ambition to become a chief exec or a director it was more an ambition to feel that I was progressing certainly an individual level but also to think that for me, it's really important to be able to do as much as I can within my own capabilities, within the roles that I take on. And I've got a place where I realise that titles do matter. And I'm not saying that that's right. It's just the system and the structure that we're in. And so there was an element of seeking out a title, I guess, which I need to be quite honest about, because I thought that that would allow me to do far more and create far more impact, positive impact in the sectors and areas I was working in. I absolutely love charitable funding. I think what we do for a living is an incredible honour. And we have independence, we have voice, we have access, uh, we have the ability to think in the long term. We are able to connect with huge number of peers, allies, different sectors, different thought leaders on issues and you know, ultimately it is in pursuit of positive social change and that's fantastic. It's a huge honour to work in this part of the sector and I've seen firsthand directly the good that it can do. So it was certainly an ambition to become a leader in the charitable funding world and I just guess I was very fortunate in that there were people who saw that quality in me and were very encouraging in saying that you can have those roles because I don't know that I necessarily thought I could. And this isn't a kind of, oh, I don't back myself and I don't realise talents are because obviously I do. And that's what I go and speak about when I'm in interview processes. So I don't want to kind of suggest that I don't realise that I can do these roles, but I don't know that I saw myself in those roles because there aren't a lot of people, you know, women of colour who are operating in these roles and so, yeah, I was just very fortunate that there were people who saw my experience and were encouraging. And that's really important. I think you need people who champion you and support you and say, yes, you can do these things. And then alongside that, I obviously backed myself. And this was the sector that I wanted the titled leadership role in. And you have to put yourself out there because the t- roles don't come up very often because they're amazing jobs. No one wants to step away from them. So when the roles come up, you just have to apply. Even if you're kind of wondering, am I 100% ready? Can I do this role? Can't I? Because if you don't, then you'll never get the interview. You'll never really know. Um, and certainly with Element, looking at the job description and the areas it funds in and the values it has. I just thought, gosh, this is perfect. It's me. Um, so I had to apply, even though probably there was parts of me that just wondered, was it definitely me that they would be looking for and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's nice to be kind of proven right and wrong, I guess. <laughs> it's so helpful to hear because I think many people hold themselves back from that next step because they don't feel that they've got everything that they need to make that step. And and my experience has certainly been that you never will have everything you need to make that step until you're there. And so it's trying to find that confidence in yourself to be able to put yourself forward and recognise it's a stretch. How have you found making that step? How, how much of a stretch has it been? And, and what do you draw on to help you with that? So I've 
been really fortunate. It's obviously felt a stretch at times because we're dealing, for me, the stretch has been addressing the pandemic. You know, we're a small team, so I don't know how people with larger teams and larger governing boards are managing because I just find it, you know, um, a stretch just to keep on top of ensuring that my trust feels completely engaged and abreast of what's happening the team is easier because we've got lots of kind of systems in place and we're always in regular contact with one another but you know we should be we're a team of six so if we weren't I'd be doing something very wrong so I'd say stretch points have been around dealing with uncertainties and unknowns and trying to sustain the team and the trustees getting to know me whilst we're working in lockdown because actually we've lost all of that kind of personal, physical kind of interaction that we would have when we were based in the office. In terms of other moments where I'm like, hmm, I'm not sure how to address this, I've always believed in being really open about the questions I have, the queries I have, the concerns I have. So throughout this period, kind of both before the pandemic and during it, I've been really fortunate in just being able to pick up the phone and say, I'm not not sure about this. We're doing this. What are you doing? And I think that's a really important quality in a leader to know what you know and to ask questions when you've got gaps in your knowledge. Um, so that's been really important. I've done a lot of kind of picking up the phone, asking questions, sending people emails, um, staying in touch with people from before this role who I would consider as mentors and you know, making sure I'm in with them to get some more advice, but also on a personal level as well, because, you know, this is affecting us and our personal lives too. And so it's important to be able to talk about those things and to bring your whole self to work. And I encourage my team to do that. And they, they are getting my whole self too. They're working with me while I'm in my own home. So yeah, I think that the stretch periods are well covered by just being very honest about what I know and what I don't know, asking for help when I don't know uh, the answers to questions I might have, and also being really open with my team and with the trustees too. So a lot of what we've been talking about is options. (laughs) These are things we could do rather than being, you know, normally I'd say I'd probably be talking with a lot more certainty, as in these are the things we're doing. (laughs) Um, So yeah, there's an element of just adjusting how we approach things at the moment, certainly. And um, I'm, I'm really interested in in your thoughts on uh, titled leadership because it's certainly something that I've often contemplated because I'm instinctively um, someone who doesn't believe in hierarchy and bureaucracy and uh, and really embraces more flat structures and everybody operated on an equal level um, and yet we operate in systems and structures that require some level of um, hierarchy in order to um, in order to operate and so trying to work through how you how you thrive in a system that you don't necessarily want to be within but you do want to achieve the outcomes that that system is there to achieve um, I, I'm constantly grappling with and uh, I'd be really interested in your reflections on that now stepping into far more formal titled leadership how how are you managing that um so bringing the kind of values and mindset that you believe in within a system that's not quite structured how you think it should be I've grappled with this because I've realized that by dint of labels and aspects of who I am which I have absolutely no control over I've been prejudged 
marginalized, othered, or whatever, and questioned in a way that people I've worked with just haven't been questioned. And so I completely agree with you. Hierarchical structures are not what I seek or what I aspire to, but I realized really quickly in all of my roles that without that title as and and I recognize how many privileges I have I'm not sat here saying you know how difficult my life is because I have a huge number of privileges and I recognize what they are and what they have allowed me to achieve but what I will say is I've worked in so many roles and seen that without titles it is far easier to dismiss me or people like me and until I'm in titled positions and able to change it from then and from there, then, um, yeah, I, I don't really know what the alternative is. The only thing I would say is that in every role I've had where I've had, lead, you know, led a team, led a process, led a inquiry, whatever it might be, um, including now leading John Elliman Foundation, my approach has been to understand we are part of a system and an operating structure that is generally quite hierarchical, but to recognise that we are all leaders, uh, to support people to lead in the areas where they feel they can, and to understand that we can all be empowered to do really amazing work. And so that is my job as a leader, to make everyone feel like a leader and to feel empowered. And it is also my job as a leader to challenge people who don't understand that that's how we should be working. And so that is what I hope I do. But I know there's always more I can be doing and more that I will be doing going forwards because not everyone shares my view or your view on how things should be. And yeah, I do wish it was different, uh, but I also know that it isn't. And I'd rather see people like me in those positions as opposed to people who aren't like me and feel that they to be threatened or judgmental of people like me. And when I say people like me, I, I know that I fit very specific categories, but I hope you know like the point I'm making. Yeah, of course. And um, I feel similar. It's something that I've been reflecting on a lot um, because, because I, uh, I, I benefit from a huge amount of privilege being a, a, a white man in a, a heterosexual and uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of how the structures and systems normalize the privileges that I have. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to use the power that I have to try to help challenge some of those systems. But I recognize that part of that is also creating space for others and trying to both work within a system without being complicit in the system itself. And so there's some really big questions I think we're, we're all asking ourselves at the moment. And um, it's it's really encouraging to see more people from different backgrounds stepping into leadership roles. And um, the, the question for us is how we, we don't just have that representation, but also that leads to then a change in the structures and systems and outcomes and the, and the ways we operate as well. And I know this is something in the sector that you've, uh, you've been, you've been a, a leading voice in. You were contributing at the Institute of Fundraising to the thinking there around equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, you've been, uh, I know, uh, one of the contributors and, and thinkers around the Akivo Home Truce Report as well. Do you, do you feel there is a, a sea change in the sector? It's hard to say. Um, 
two things come to mind, two words, intentions and through line. Um, I think that sea change is probably too big a statement to make at the moment. And I'm generally an optimist, but sea change implies real change, significant change. And there is a pessimist in me that feels that we're possibly not there yet. What I will say is we are probably moving towards a tipping point that has been a very long time coming. And there's a lot of us on those scales trying to get it to a tipping point where the sea change might then follow. In terms of through line though, there is clearly a huge amount of progress that's been made on the backs of so many individuals from the sector who've worked across it in multiple decades, who have been there consistently and persistently pushing for change and progress. And they have achieved a lot in that time. And yet we are still here having these conversations about the issues, be it at a board governance level or at an operational level of underrepresentation and just failure to recognise the abundance that exists in diverse and varied communities that we work with and why representation matters and meaningful, genuine, thoughtful representation matters. So there's still a huge amount to do. I feel really empowered and um, well supported by the initiatives that are in place at the moment. So things like the Institute of Fundraising, uh, the work that Charity So White are doing, the work that Future Foundations UK are doing, um, the work that Akivo is doing as a leading membership body. And they are being so kind of strident and forthright you know, what needs to change. And that's for all four of the people, uh, the organisations I've mentioned, not just the Kivo. But so I feel confident that we are continuing to build on a huge amount of work that's already happened. The easiest and simplest way I can put it is that when I joined the sector in a kind of formal paid salaried role in 2009, these conversations did not exist. It's good to see 11 years later that these conversations absolutely do exist and are happening. Conversations are great and they need to be had. We need to explore how we're feeling about, you know, these issues and, you know, representation across the entire spectrum. Of, But I do feel that there's a lot left to do and a lot more that needs to happen. But we are still kind of adding to the scales. We're getting towards that tipping point. And... For you personally, how how much of this context um, shapes and influences your your thinking around leadership? It shapes it a huge amount. If I'm really honest, and I was honest about this when I joined as um, chair of the Change Collective for the Institute of Fundraising when it was the Time Limited panel, and I spoke to Peter Lewis and Elizabeth Valgobin, who approached me about being chair, and I said, this is really difficult. I've spent my whole career to date not talking about my labels. And I've done that deliberately because to do so would be exposing whenever I did, even if it was briefly, it felt extractive and it felt dangerous. And I know that sounds really dramatic and I'm prone to being dramatic. (laughs) I promise I'm not being dramatic. It felt dangerous. And I'd got into this seemingly comfortable space of not acknowledging it 
keeping it on the back burner, just focusing on progressing, progressing issues I cared about. So, you know, don't get me wrong, I was still doing things like, you know, the Women and Girls Initiative, which prioritised and um, favoured applications from Black and minoritized ethnic-led women and girls groups. So it wasn't that I was denying it totally, but I wasn't talking about it in the context of who I am as a person. And that was a deliberate decision. And then when the Change Collective opportunity presented itself, I wasn't technically in the sector. I was working for a public sector organisation primarily. And that in itself felt like it was keeping me safe. I could be a bit more kind of strident and outrageous and and clear about what I thought the flaws were, but I was still a step removed. So I just want to be really honest that if anything, it's 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 always there. It's, you know, the label is there before I even open my mouth. It's visible. The labels are visible. So yeah, I, I think I, I found it very difficult to talk about and share from the context of me. And then since doing the Institute of Fundraising work and realising that I am genuinely part of a collective, I have a peer group, I have supporters, we are not alone in this. I found people to talk to about this in a really kind of safe and brave space. And that's not just been at the Institute of Fundraising, but it's been another kind of groups I've kind of got involved with and, and worked with. It's been a lot easier because there is safety in numbers. There is a safety in saying, I'm not the only person who feels like this. This isn't just in my head. This isn't just me. Um, So, yeah, it does shape who I am as a leader. I want to be an authentic leader. I want to be someone who is visible about who I am in the fullest sense. I want to, therefore, be able to encourage other people to see themselves in these roles and to not hold themselves back from aspiring to these roles. But I also, you know, I'm not going to leap into titles like role model or or things like that because that, you know, it's still pretty early and I've got loads of role models who are amazing and I'm not in their league in any way whatsoever. And that's not me just being very humble. It's just me knowing that there is so much excellence across our sector, you know, from women of colour, people of colour, people with whatever other labels um, and you know, we have so many examples of people we can aspire to. And so, yeah, my leadership is about putting myself into these situations, talking about myself in the fullest sense that I feel kind of confident and able to, and getting comfortable with the fact that I want other people to see that by me being in the role, they can also be in the role too. Sorry, (laughs) just kind of meandering answer there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that's that's a really uh, a really full answer and helpful because I think it helps understand both both the personal and also um, how it's shaped the types of leadership that that you offer and, and and what it asks you to give of yourself. And I think I think great leadership always requires you to 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 be generous in what you give away rather than what you take. And um, it it involves carrying quite a weight at the same time because that's a lot of responsibility. And you're very, I think as a a leader, you're always very conscious of of how visible your leadership is and um, that that whether you set out to be a role model or not, you are role modeling in, in the way that you approach 
your leadership. Um, and one of the things that uh, impresses me about you, Safina, is the different roles of leadership that you play, whether it's within the organisation that you lead or as a thought leader within the sector or in the range of different um, uh, ways that you get involved. Because, of course, you, uh, you're a trustee yourself as well, aren't you? How, how do you find that as a different type of leadership? I love being a trustee. I've got to be completely honest. So my first trustee role came when I was at the big lottery fund. And it is 100% because working for a funder makes it so much easier to get a position on a board. Because I think I'd applied for a very similar trustee role three months earlier when I was working for a health and social care learning disability provider. And then three months later, working for the big lottery fund, to then become a trustee of a learning disabilities charity suddenly became so much easier. Um, So go figure. But it's been one of the most kind of rewarding and satisfying parts of my career being a trustee. So I've been a trustee since 2014 and I've had four different trustee positions in that time, five actually. One was through the National Lottery Community Fund. um, So it was part of being there and the rest were you know, through me as an individual. And the thing I will say about all of those experiences is I was quite determined to get those experiences. I thought it was a really good way in which I could learn more about leadership and leading an organisation and the kind of breadth of what you need to do rather than, you know, in your roles as you kind of are working through your career, you have very specific work that you need to do uh, specific responsibilities and so on and so forth and what you learn about and I was getting really good at kind of managing teams and working in teams and delivering specific things but I thought through a trustee role I could get a real sense of what the breadth of what an organization needs to do is because I don't know that you necessarily get opportunity to learn that when you're still at the kind of earlier end of your career um, And then I kind of pursued governance roles which relate to things I'm just interested in and not necessarily working on specifically in my career. So I'm a governor for the house, which is an arms house, but it's also a heritage and educational centre. And it's been going since 1611. And these are all things that I'm kind of interested in at an individual level, but that's not where I focused my career necessarily. It's been an incredible learning experience. And, you know, I'm learning more about all sorts of um, ways of working. And we have different entities through which we operate the organisation. So you've got even different, like access to different styles of accounts, you know, these are not things that you can necessarily learn in your career if you've got a specific role policy, for example, which I had for for a little while. And with governance roles, I would say it's about pursuing things based on interest and your kind of commitment to learning about the full breadth of what an organisation does rather than a very specific um, subset of it. Although you can obviously do that through subcommittees and whatnot. And I love spending time working as a um, trustee for different charities because you get to meet a huge range of different people you get to work in a strategic leadership position where you're all volunteers but there is still a hierarchy of sorts and you know everyone's bringing different experiences different you know work-life balances and so on and so forth and you know they've got such varied commitment um 
or ways of committing. It's not very commitment in that some are more committed than others, but their ways of committing are so varied. You're all volunteers, so you're not being paid to be there. And there's just this way of working that you learn that I just don't know that I could have learned in the same way through my paid roles. Absolutely. I I love being a trustee myself. And I think it gives you such a different perspective on how organisations operate and helps you, as you say, get get that breadth of understanding, but also that real sense of accountability. Because when you sit on the board, you're very conscious that you're you're stewarding this organisation, which could have been around for a very long time, and you want it to be around in the future as well. Um, how, how do you find the balance between governance and, uh, and management? Because I think that's always a tricky one for a trustee, particularly if you're passionate about what the organisation does, how to know when to hold back and empower the staff team to get on with it and when to be there to make sure that you're offering accountability and support and and all the rest of it? So obviously I'm really biased and I think I'm an incredible trustee, but (laughs) (laughs) no, the reality is for me, I think it's about being really clear that there is a boundary and that you are not an operational member of staff. I've been really fortunate in the positions uh, where I've been a trustee, the chief exec and their senior team have been really clear when they needed advice and support from trustees and sought it from the relevant trustees. Um, I think being part of subcommittees means that you learn where you can ask for a bit more detail as opposed to kind of wider board meetings. And it's just about asking questions. And for me, if I see that there is something that seems to be going awry, rather than kind of bulldozing in and saying do this this and this just ask the question like I think this seems like this is that your understanding too what am I missing what could be helpful from for you from us right now and just rather than going in with all the answers which I think when you're in operational roles even um you know, I think when you're in operational roles, you should remain inquisitive and collaborative, but you are expected to know the answers to the questions you're asking, if that makes sense. Whereas I think in a governance role, you aren't living the day to day. You're getting a set of papers alongside, you know, verbal updates. So don't assume you have all of the answers, ask the questions and just be really open to the fact that if you're chief exec and their leadership team need your help and need your advice and need you to specifically kind of roll your sleeves up and get involved in something they will ask but it doesn't hurt to make sure that they're aware that they can do all of those things and they can ask for that help yeah I think that's that's really wise I I remember when um, I first thought about being a trustee someone I respected who'd been a trustee for a while said that the art of great trusteeship is knowing which questions to ask as you say it's not about having the answers it's uh, what what teams most appreciate is a well-placed question that helps them think through what it is that needs to be delivered and that also helps with the accountability role as well and perhaps if we, if we go back a bit then to something you said when you took on the director role earlier in our conversation that it made you think about the kind of breadth of responsibility and very mindful at John Elliman, you've got um, a wide brief in one sense, you know, the, the arts, entertainment, social action covers a lot. So how how do you get your head around that as, as a director who has to have that big picture overview, but also you're, you're accountable for the day-to-day, the, the operational detail? How, how do you balance that? So the breadth is what drew me in. I think I can see 
the complete distinction between our categories of art, social action and environment, but I can also see how they interconnect and how taken together that is how you can advance well-being and really um, create a planet that works for everyone. But I will often describe myself as a specialist in generalism (laughs) and I'm completely comfortable with that and confident in my abilities as a generalist I'm passionate about a lot of different things. I'm interested in a lot of different things. So roles that require me to work across a wider brief are ones that will suit me best. I'm a sucker for no days the same as the previous day kind of living. So (laughs) yeah, being a generalist works for me perfectly. And so it does come back to understanding what the brief is really understanding it in detail knowing what the different parts are how they interconnect how they don't why they don't in some cases um and then understanding who's doing what who's responsible for what where you need to bring in specialism and if so why do you need to bring in that specialism and how can you do that in a way that's effective and contributes to what you're doing so for me as as a leader of this organization it's knowing every single thing the kind of nth degree detail and i know what bits need to be done by me what bits need to be done by the team and me working together or the team by itself with me just having oversight and you know being a safe or a helping hand say yep that looks right go for it so yeah that's that's my approach i think it is about being very comfortable as a uh, generalist. <laughs> and um, I, I really love that phrase. And is, is that something that you have, have learned about yourself over time? Have you, have you paid attention to, to your strengths and, uh, and, and what you're like at your best? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, could have had all the different careers. Um, and that's not because I was particularly lacking in passion about something when I was up. I was always passionate about different things and pursued those passions but yeah I'm interested in a lot of different things I love to learn and you know working in roles with charitable funders you learn so much every single kind of grant you make every single program you launch or every single meeting you attend and I think that's the case for all of us in this sector we're constant learning that's probably one of the things that attracts us to it most so Yeah, I think it's something I've learned about myself over the years. It's something I've become more comfortable about in myself over the years. I think um, there are points when you start to compare yourself to your peers and you wonder, gosh, maybe I should have done X, Y, Z and become that. Um, And then you just need to kind of roll with it. And I think it's a strength. It's definitely a strength because it means that I can approach a lot of different things and work with a lot of different people to deliver work and... I don't have to be the expert in the room to be someone who can facilitate work through to its conclusion successfully. And that's a good position and place to be. And thinking about learning, I know that you've embarked this year on an executive MBA as well. How, uh, how are you finding that? What, what, what made you decide that you wanted to do it and, and how is it going? I mean, what a, what a year to start an MBA. Um, but it was, you know, that's a decision I took. Um, to be honest, it was something that was on my mind, something I, I wanted to do some um, 
you know, some learning and, you know, there's part of me that always feels a little bit like if I just get this one next thing, then that's it. I'm setting myself up and I'll be, it's the safety net I need for a career that will sustain itself because there's always that little bit of fear of, um, you know, the imposter syndrome or whatever else uh, you might it as. So there was, you know, I was definitely seeking an opportunity to do some learning would kind of really solidify this is the career I'm in, this is the level I work at, and this is the kind of educational underpinning that I have to support that. And, you know, I didn't do a degree at university that's relevant to what I do now. If I'm honest, I did genetics. So, you know, here I am, obviously, as a director of a charitable foundation, that makes total sense. So there's an element of just trying to underpin my career with that kind of educational kind of aspect so that I feel confident in in how my career pans out going forward. The other thing is I was just very, very fortunate um, when I was recruited to pursue educational opportunities and they were really upfront and open about that. And I've never had that it really in um, in any of the roles I've applied for. And it's not to say that I've not had access to great learning and opportunities in other roles but it's never been there right at the beginning first sets of conversations you're having while you're discussing you know the job offer so I just thought why not capitalize on that if someone's offering you don't ignore it and you know they were really open to me exploring different options at one point we talked about the kind of office routes of masters in the voluntary sector and I felt that for me, based on the experience I've had uh, these last 10 or 11 years, a master's on you know, voluntary sector management or even on philanthropy would really just be saying, a bit of my career I've just been doing, now I have a master's to confirm that I did what I said I did. Um, so I said, what about an MBA? And, and they were really supportive. And so I explored that and was really fortunate to kind of through Warwick have access to scholarship opportunities and so on and so forth. And, you know, yes, we've been able to work together on um, pursuing that as an option, uh, which was definitely not anything I was thinking about when I applied for the role. It was just something that was kind of on the back burner, a little bit of a kind of hang up of my own where I just felt like if I could just get something like a qualification like a master's that would just really set me up career-wise and make me feel far more confident about my ability to lead in the long term in this sector Um, and then yeah you just take the opportunity when you hear someone is um, interested in discussing and exploring that with you it doesn't happen often um, and so you shouldn't ignore it and you know I'm really lucky I've got no real responsibilities other than myself to keep myself alive so if not now um you know when will I have time like this to do it and it's a two-year course and it's really interesting and it's um working with people some you know the cohort of about 25 of us and there's one or two who are more in the kind of charitable sector space but a lot who are in the kind of public and private space and that in itself is really interesting to learn about their experiences and their perspectives. I I think it's very impressive given everything else that you're doing at the moment as well and uh, for me um, the MBA option has always been the um, next year because it's uh, not not this year I'm really busy but maybe I'll get to it next year and that next year never quite comes around and um, 
fascinating. How, how, how do you make the time? Because you have quite a few commitments with not just the foundation, but your trustee roles and other things you do as well. How, how do you manage your work-life balance? I think that that's been, I think it's a lot easier for me because I don't have children and all of those other responsibilities that a lot of my peers at this level have. And our lectures are in the evening, so it's Tuesday and Wednesday evenings, and then you're expected to do about kind of, you know, the equivalent of a full work day of reading, which you can see split over the weekend or, you know, in the week in on your other free evenings, seemingly. And so there's an element of this is what the course has been designed for. People are working full time. There's an element of kind of peer group pressure. If they're managing it, then I better manage it too. Um, and then ultimately, I kind of went into my eyes wide open and I've kind of structured it so that I know, well, this is what the next two years looks like in terms of, you know, which evenings it takes out, how I'm going to manage staying connected to friends and family, um, to all kind of work diary as it were is you know mine to manage and um yeah I'm just super clear on what's feasible and what isn't and you know using annual leave all of those different things but I recognize I'm very very fortunate that I don't have big time like familial responsibilities because otherwise yeah this would be a huge commitment absolutely well make the most of it absolutely and uh you, you mentioned what it, what a year to to take it on, and of course, at the start, we're talking a little bit about the the pandemic as well, and how that's impacted on you stepping into a new role and uh, and supporting your team. What, what's it also meant for you leading a funding organisation? Um, how how have John Elliman responded to, to to the pandemic, and what have you needed to do as as the leader? So, for me, working with different funders over the years, and now at Elliman. We are in a completely privileged and fortunate position to be able to do what we do. And it is, you know, an honour each day. Um, and as it should be, in terms of the pandemic, we distribute 5.8 million thereabouts each year. We distribute that across three different funding areas. So, you know, when you start to kind of split it, these are not huge numbers. So our thinking has been quite simply to think about how we can do the best that we can with them that we have. So we've stayed open as a funder to new applications. The fact that there are people who are funding in the arts and had to close their grant making. So we felt that we could stay open and therefore we should and we have. And we were making grants throughout this period. In terms of our actual grantees or those that we already fund, we signed the We Stand With Us pledge, uh, which has been signed by over 400 funders now. And we've, you know, offered our uh, group. We're already a funder who supports core costs. But, you know, we've been completely comfortable with transitioning grants to being completely unrestricted bringing payments forward we usually um, only make payments once we've received a progress report from the group um, and we've been comfortable with saying that we can forego the progress report but still release the payment um, but alongside that recognizing we are part of a bigger whole um, I've been really keen that we contribute to the kind Kind of strategic conversations that are happening in the sector. So we're part of an arts funders group that's um, chaired by Moira at Paul Hamlin. And there's, you know, a good kind of cohort of funders in the arts space who meet 
or charitable foundations in the art space who meet on a really quite regular basis to talk about what we're all doing, the ways in which we could support each other, but also the sector and um, trying to take a really evidence-led approach to what we can do. And so that's been a really good group to work with and alongside. And then we're also, I'm part of the strategy group for the Association of Charitable Foundations is start, is setting up like a funders collaborative hub. And so the strategy group is there to kind of think about what the kind of direction of travel for that is. So yeah, we don't necessarily, um, we haven't been in a position to release new money or to kind of create a specific COVID response fund. We've tried to kind of essentially deliver business as usual in unusual circumstances. But then we take our responsibilities seriously as being part of a wider funding ecology. And so we've tried to contribute to conversations that are happening across all three of our funding categories to think about strategically what is needed and what is the role of charitable trust foundations in that. And the ACF uh, Funders Hub and the Arts Funders Group are two good kind of clear examples of where we've been contributing to conversations strategically. But there are, of course, lots of other kind of conversations that are happening in the background. Yeah, it seems that there's some really big questions being asked at the moment about about how a sector is funded. Uh, so who gets funded, how they get funded, who makes those choices? How have uh, how have you found it being involved in those conversations? So how how have you contributed and what do you bring to those debates? The sector has got a long-standing issue of not funding groups, particularly those that are led by black and minoritized ethnic groups um, and I feel really passionately about that. There have been projects on this pretty much, you know, I can remember them from when I was working at the National Lottery Community and now more than ever practice and processes need to change. Indeed, they are changing and we can't ignore that and that's positive. So my contribution has been to work in the groups that I'm involved in and the conversations I'm involved in to make clear that we need to do more and must do more. At a kind of organisational level for Element, our kind of approach has been, and this was something we were doing pre-pandemic, but certainly are doing as much of now, is doing things like the grantee perception survey, going through our data and recategorising it and, you know, tidying up our data essentially so that we get a sense who are we giving funds to and who are we not giving funds to and let's get a plan and figure out how we address that um so yeah we are really clear of understanding baselines benchmarking ourselves against others and then setting targets to improve how we um, work we've also joined the resourcing racial justice fund which was set up in response to the pandemic and as part of that process we're developing what's called an accountability plan about how we as a funder can give this money to them but also transform and reflect on how we operate across all that we do and make improvements and those are you know directly related to racial justice and being an anti-racist organization um, and recognizing that you know this is an issue that intersects across other issues too. And I think that's that's one of the more encouraging aspects of the pandemic is in some senses it's providing some catalyst at least for us to move forward on a number of issues and agendas that we knew needed progressing already, but it's by necessity required us to really make progress. You said earlier on that that you're naturally optimistic. What what gives you most hope for the future? I 
feel very hopeful that this will lead to sustained conversations and ultimately change about the ways in which this sector does good and question that a little more so that where we are not doing good, we redress that and really challenge ourselves to be better. So I feel really optimistic about that. I think that these conversations and the changes that will follow from them will happen. Um, I wouldn't put a timeline on that. I think it's going to take probably more time than it should. I feel optimistic that in the charitable funding space, there will be more organisations that think carefully about their own processes and systems. I also think it should lead to more just mainstreaming of things like core funding. So, you know, as a funder, Elemen does core funding, but we will probably no longer be as exceptional as we currently are. So it will be a really good practical win. And I do hope that, you know, some of the work we've seen with the infrastructure bodies working together really closely will sustain themselves. I think it's been really valuable to see those different bodies working together in the way that they have during this crisis. And collectively, the fact they've been able to make has been really um, visible. So I hope that that's another change. There we go. That was episode five of Otmo. Thank you so much to Safina. There's only one comment on which I disagreed with her, and that's whether or not she can yet be considered a role model. I certainly feel we need many more talented leaders like Safina in title positions leading the way in our social good sector. And I'm very sure she's already a great role model for many aspiring leaders. You can follow Safina on the Twitter at Safina Ahmed. And if you want to hear more from Safina, I'd strongly recommend downloading the Akivo podcast episode in which she features discussing the very important Home Truths report. Thanks again then to Safina Ahmed. And as always, huge thanks to Katie Clark and Mark Hatter for all you do to make this podcast sound and look as good as it possibly can. I'm grateful to you both. And thanks to you, dear listener. If you want to keep regularly updated, you can subscribe at our website, onthemindof.com, and sign up for regular downloads through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, follow the On The Mind Of Pod on Twitter, or me, at Mr. Joe Jenkins. And if you are able to share the podcast and rate it too, that will help us reach a few more people and give us encouragement to make a few more shows. Until next time, thanks for listening to Whatmo, the podcast that explores what's on the mind of leaders who are seeking to change the world.